Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's Labor Day podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. Well, ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Visit expressvpn.com gold to get an extra three months free off of your one year subscription package. Today is Labor Day. And I hope all of my podcast listeners are enjoying this three-day unofficial end of summer holiday weekend. And in fact, for many of my podcast listeners, this is a four-day weekend because the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah begins at sunset tonight. For those of you who don't know, Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, and many people who celebrate that holiday will also have Tuesday off. So again, I want to start off the podcast by wishing a happy new year to all of my Jewish listeners, but I really wanted to dedicate today's podcast to the holiday of Labor Day, because a lot of people probably don't give much thought to what we're supposed to be celebrating on Labor Day. They just take for granted, hey, it's a holiday and I'm not going to have to go to work or I'm not going to have to go to school. In fact, there's only 12 federally recognized holidays, Labor Day being one of them. In fact, there was only 11 until June of this year when Juneteenth became the 12th federal holiday a couple months ago. And I did an entire podcast on Juneteenth. So I'm not going to talk about it today, but if you're interested in my take on Juneteenth, 
Listen to podcast number 705. Juneteenth is only the beginning. And I think I do a pretty thorough job of going over Juneteenth. I just want to stay focused on Labor Day for today's podcast. And so Labor Day had its origins in 1894. That's when it was signed into law as a federal holiday. Now, prior to Labor Day being a federal holiday, it was celebrated on the state level, similar to the fact that Juneteenth was a recognized holiday in Texas and some other states before uh, making it to a federal holiday. You had a number of states that had been recognizing Labor Day as an official holiday. And then there was a lot of political pressure uh, on the government at the time to recognize it as a national holiday. This really was the beginning of the populist movement. And it was very populist to want to honor labor, right? The common man, the average guy, right? Certainly labor outnumbers management, right? Employees are far more numerous than employers. And so they represent a lot of votes. And so politicians are looking to get votes. And so they're always looking to curry favor with labor because there's a lot of votes there. Also, you had the beginning of the rise of the labor movement in the United States. So trying to increase the clout of labor by recognizing labor with a federal holiday. So it was passed by Congress and signed into law by then President Grover Cleveland in 1894. Now, before I move on to discuss Labor Day, I want to talk a little bit about Grover Cleveland, the president who put his John Hancock on this legislation, because Grover Cleveland is probably one of my all-time favorite U.S. presidents. And very few people actually know anything about Grover Cleveland. Maybe the only thing that most people know about him is that he's the only U.S. president to serve two non-consecutive terms. Now, I know that's something that Donald Trump is planning. He may try to run for re-election and do exactly what Grover Cleveland did. But up until today, he is the only person to have served two non-consecutive terms as president because he lost his re-election attempt and then came back and won the presidency for a second time. And maybe, you know, that's all you know about him. Maybe that's a trivial pursuit question. But there's a lot more to Grover Cleveland than that trivial fact. I mean, first of all, he was a Democrat. And that may surprise people that one of my favorite presidents is a Democrat. After all, I'm very critical of Democrats today. And that is true. And the Democrats of yesterday, particularly the Democrats of Grover Cleveland's party were nothing like the Democrats of today. I wish they were, but unfortunately, they really are the polar opposite of what Democrats were in 1894, certainly what Grover Cleveland was. The Democratic Party would never nominate somebody like Grover Cleveland today. In fact, even the Republican Party wouldn't nominate somebody like Grover Cleveland. He was more of a libertarian. So if you were going to find a person with the type of character, the type of political philosophy that Grover Cleveland had, you're far more likely to find that individual in the Libertarian Party than either the Democrat or the Republican Party, which probably explains why I'm such a big fan 
of Grover Cleveland. But one thing in particular that he's very famous for among the people who actually know history is the fact that he vetoed this bill, which was going to raise $10,000 to buy seeds for farmers in Texas that had been stricken by a drought. In fact, the reason that I want to talk about this now is because there's a lot of natural disasters in the news. And of course, whenever there's a natural disaster, everybody takes it for granted that the federal government is going to dole out all kinds of money to help all the people who have unfortunately been hurt by this disaster. We just take it for granted that this is what the government does even though there's nothing in the Constitution that says the U.S. government is supposed to come to the aid of individuals or states in time of natural disaster. It just happens automatically, and we all just assume that that's always been the case, and that's not true. Because when Grover Cleveland was president and we had that drought in Texas, you had Congress actually passed legislation to come to the aid of these poor farmers. Now, $10,000, that's total. That's not per farmer. That's all the farmers collectively were gonna get $10,000 worth of seeds. I mean, that's not a lot of money. You know, adjusting it for inflation is probably maybe half a million, not even quite a million dollars. So that's nothing, right? That's a rounding error. It's not even, it's a rounding error from a rounding error in today's budget. So nobody would give a second thought to this bill. Yet Grover Cleveland, vetoed the legislation, right? Can you imagine that? I mean, somebody today vetoing aid to help somebody who's been stricken by a natural disaster and the president says, no, you can't have the aid. Of course, no president would have the political courage to deny anybody in trouble some type of federal aid. But I want to read from his veto message. This is what Grover Cleveland told the American public. This was the explanation that he offered for why he vetoed this bill. I'm just going to read this entire quote in its entirety. So, quote, I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution, and I do not believe that the power and the duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering, which is in no manner properly related to the public service or benefit. A prevalent tendency to disregard the limited mission of this power and duty should, I think, be steadfastly resisted to the end that the lesson should be constantly enforced that though the people support the government, the government should never support the people. Imagine that. Imagine a modern president looking at the Constitution for anything and saying that he can find nothing in the Constitution that authorizes this that it's not the duty of government to come to the aid of individuals and relieve their suffering, and that the government should never support the people. But this, these are true principles. I mean, the Constitution hasn't been amended in this respect since Cleveland was president. And there is no new power that has been granted to the federal government that it didn't have when Grover Cleveland vetoed this legislation. Yet somehow modern presidents are reading into the Constitution powers that clearly didn't exist when Grover Cleveland honestly read the Constitution. It's just that modern presidents ignore the Constitution and the Supreme Court lets them get away with it. In fact, he even made another comment that I thought was particularly prescient with respect to federal aid. I'm going to read this quote, quote, 
Federal aid in such cases encourages the expectation of paternal care on the part of the government and weakens the sturdiness of our national character. Absolutely. Basically, we were a nation of rugged individuals, and he didn't want that nation to become dependent on government handouts, to begin to expect that whenever there was a natural disaster, the government was going to come to your aid. What he wanted is for individuals to act independently, to be careful, to exercise caution, and to prepare for natural disasters and deal with the consequences on their own. But now we have this moral hazard where no one gives a damn. We keep rebuilding in flood zones because we know the federal government is going to keep paying to rebuild anything gets flooded. And so as a result of this moral hazard, each natural disaster does far more damage economically than would have been the case if individuals had free market incentives to do the right things in advance of natural disasters. But because everybody knows that whatever happens, the government's going to bail them out, then those free market forces are no longer working and we end up with much more costly natural disasters. I mean, the natural disasters themselves are going to keep happening. There's nothing we can do about that. But what government moral hazard has created is a situation where the economic damage as a result of these natural disasters is always greater than what the damage would have been had everybody known that the government wasn't going to bail them out. And then they would have made different decisions on where to build and how to build and if they should have insurance and insurance would have been more accurately priced and therefore would have had a different effect on decisions and behavior than is the case because the government has intervened and created all this moral hazard. But anyway, so that's what I want to say a little bit about Grover Cleveland. So even though he signed Labor Day into a federal holiday, and again, I'm not necessarily opposed to the federal holiday of Labor Day, and I'm not saying that because Grover Cleveland signed that legislation that it was a bad thing, but clearly there was a lot of pressure on Grover Cleveland, a lot of political pressure given the surge in populist sentiment. And in fact, that wave, that populist wave that began at that time really didn't crest until 1913, which by the way, is probably the worst year in American history. First of all, 1913 was the year that we swore in Woodrow Wilson as president. And a lot of bad things happened on Woodrow Wilson's watch, one of them being America's entrance into World War I, which I think was a huge mistake. Wilson never should have brought us into that war. In fact, the pretext of joining the war was to make the world safe for democracy, which of course America was not. America was a republic. But again, the democratic furor was part of this populist movement. The country itself was formed as a constitutional republic specifically because the founding fathers were very familiar of the failures of democracies and why democracy always failed. And they wanted to make sure that they created America as a nation that would not be a democracy because they were hoping that America would not meet the same fate 
as other failed democracies. But Woodrow Wilson really, I think, was the first American president to really start talking about democracy and we got to make the world safe for democracy. And that's why we got into World War One, and we had no business getting into that war. We should have stayed out of that war. And had we stayed out of that war, I think that we never would have had a World War II. I mean, that's a deep topic and I really don't have time to get into it during this podcast. But had America not gotten into World War I, I don't think Germany would have lost the war. I think it would have ended in a stalemate. And I think there wouldn't have been a harsh Treaty of Versailles that really laid the foundation for the popular uprising of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler. And but for the Nazis and Adolf Hitler, we probably wouldn't have had a World War II. We certainly wouldn't have had concentration camps and all that. So a lot of bad dominoes fell after America decided to enter World War I. Now, I don't blame Woodrow Wilson for that. There's no way that he could have seen that far into the future to realize that by knocking down that domino, he was going to be creating an Adolf Hitler. So I can't lay the blame on Wilson for that. But I do blame him for getting us into World War I. I blame him for getting us into the League of Nations, which was started after World War I. And even though the League of Nations fell apart because of World War II, which kind of showed you it didn't really work very well, but even though it fell apart, it really was the forerunner of the United Nations, which still exists today and which I think was also a mistake. So if there wasn't a League of Nations, there probably wouldn't have been a United Nations. And all this was started under Woodrow Wilson, but three other very bad things that happened during Woodrow Wilson's term in 1913. This is his first term in office. We got the passage and ratification of the 16th Amendment, which paved the way for the initial Revenue Act, the income tax. That started in 1913. Again, it was a populist wave that caused this because the 16th Amendment was supposed to allow the government to move away from tariffs, and tariffs were paid by the working man, and the income tax was going to be paid by the super rich, by the 1%. This was the original battle of the 99% versus the 1%. They wanted the income tax. They wanted to tax the rich, the Carnegie's, the Vanderbilt's, the Rockefeller's. That's who was supposed to be subject to the income tax, which was only a few percent anyway. It was a very low tax that affected a very small number of people. And in exchange, the average person was not going to have to pay his tariffs. We were going to tax the rich and we were going to remove the burden on the middle class and the poor. That is very much the rhetoric of today. The problem is the income tax actually now hits the middle class much harder than it was originally envisioned to inflict the rich. And that's why it's so dangerous to get in bed with the government. If you think, hey, I'm in the middle class and I'm going to get in bed with the government because the government is going to screw over the rich, right? The minute that happens, you're the one that ends up getting screwed over because the middle class is going to pay all these taxes. So whatever new taxes are going to be imposed on the super rich, if it's a, a wealth tax or any other kind of tax that is designed to hit the rich, ultimately it's going to boomerang and hit the middle class and the working poor much harder than it does the rich, which is exactly what happened with the income tax. So we got that in 1913. Also, we got the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, a disaster. We now have the Federal Reserve. 
I talk a lot about the problems of the Federal Reserve, so I don't have to introduce those problems now. If you listen to my podcast, you know about all the damage the Federal Reserve has done, but we actually got the Federal Reserve in the same year that we got the income tax. But one other amendment that we got in 1913, again, part of this populist wave was the 17th Amendment. A lot of people don't know what the 17th Amendment is. The 17th Amendment authorizes the popular election of United States senators. A lot of people don't realize that U.S. senators weren't always elected by the people the way we elect our representatives to the House. Those serving in the House of Representatives were always elected by the people. That was the way it was supposed to be. And that was the House of Congress that really was supposed to be reflective of, beholden to the people, right? That's why representatives were up for re-election every two years. The idea was that the representatives would be responsible to the people, and that's why they would have to sit for election every two years, because the people were going to have a say in who's representing them. The idea was by having representatives run for re-election every two years, that there would be a lot of turnover. Because they had to run so often, a lot of people would lose. And so there'd be a lot of new blood that was coming into the House. And this new blood would be more representative of the people because the new people coming in to the House were coming from the private sector, right? They weren't already in government. And so they were more in tuned to the needs or the desires of the constituents. So this was supposed to be the body that was representative of the people. And it's ironic, of course, because today turnover is so small. Something like 90% of House representatives are reelected. I mean, what's the point of having elections every two years if you're reelecting the same guys? There is no turnover. And the reason for that is because the incumbents have rigged the system. Right. They're in Washington and now they have the deck stacked. You've got campaign finance laws and all sorts of other things that heavily favor incumbents. And it makes it so difficult for the House to turn over to the degree that the founding fathers envisioned when they created it. But the United States Senate was supposed to be something different. It was supposed to be a check against that power, against the populist movements or things that might happen that might result in some type of impulsive type of legislation because the Senate was appointed by the state legislatures. They were not elected. They were appointed. Now, the state legislatures may have been elected, but you had this group of people then working to appoint the senators. So by separating the senators from having to be directly elected by the people, there was a bit of a buffer there. And it was thought that the elected representatives of the people collectively may make a more informed decision as to who to appoint to serve in the U.S. Senate than would the people if they were electing U.S. senators directly. And in fact, the terms of the senators were six years, right? So they would have more time in office and they staggered the terms. So only one third of the senators were up for election at the same time or re-election. Whereas the House of Representatives, everybody is up for re-election every two years. Only one third of the senators 
are up for re-election every two years, and then they serve a six-year term. And again, this was designed to protect the nation from a popular wave that might capture the entire U.S. House. At most, it could capture one-third of the Senate, but you can't pass legislation with one-third of the Senate. Remember, you need both the House and the Senate together to pass legislation before the president can even sign it. And of course, the president could veto it, in which case you need two-thirds of both the House and the Senate to override it. So I think that the United States was much better off when senators were appointed by the state legislatures than it is today now that they are elected by the people. But again, this was all part of this populist movement that really began around the time that Labor Day became a federal holiday. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So now let me turn my attention to the Labor Day holiday. Because first of all, when you think about Labor Day, I mean, why is Labor Day a holiday? I mean, to me, it sounds like Labor Day would be a holiday that you would celebrate, let's say, in the old Soviet Union, right? Because the Communist Party, they, they elevate labor, right? They have labor up like on the top, right? They're, that's the best thing you can be is a worker, right? If you're an employer, oh, you're evil, right? You're just exploiting people. Uh, it's the workers who are the real heroes. And so the Communist Party always wants to celebrate labor. And so it would make sense that a communist country would have a Labor Day. But America, a capitalist country, why are we not honoring the entrepreneur, right? The people who employ the workers, those who are responsible for signing the front of the paycheck, not the people that just sign the back and cash the paychecks, but the people who make the paychecks possible. I mean, think about it. I'm not saying anything against the common worker, the guys and gals who are out there working for wages and showing up every day and doing their work and collecting their paychecks. I don't have anything against them. What I'm just saying is what they're doing is not nearly as valuable and important as what their employers are doing, right? The easiest thing that you can do when it comes to a business is show up and get a paycheck, right? You get a job and your employer basically tells you, here's what you need to do. These are your responsibilities. And then you do it. And if you show up on time and you do the work, you get paid. And you know going in, you're going to get paid. As long as you do your work, your employer is going to pay you. In fact, if he doesn't pay you, right, it's a liability. I mean, you could take him to court. The employer is required to pay the worker. Doesn't matter whether the employer makes any money or not. That's not the worker's problem. If the worker shows up and does his job, he gets paid. What's far more difficult is the job of the entrepreneur, right? The person who starts the business. Because when you start a business, you have no idea if you're going to make any money. 
I mean, you only make money if at the end of the day, after all your workers are paid what you agreed to pay them, and after you pay all of the other expenses of your business, right? Labor is just one component, right? You have to pay your workers wages. Well, what if you have an office or some type of facility where everybody works? Well, you've got to pay the landlord rent to have that. What if you borrowed money? You've got to pay interest to whoever loaned it to you, right? You needed capital. Either you had to borrow money to get that capital, which are the tools that you are providing with your workers in order to do their job. If you didn't have the capital yourself, you had to take out a loan. And so now you're having to pay interest. But even if you had the capital on your own, to the extent that you didn't buy that capital, you could have made loans and you could have earned interest yourself. There's all sorts of opportunity costs associated with tying up a bunch of your own money in capital. But assuming that after all of your rents, all of your interest, all of your taxes, all of your wages, all of your other operating expenses, all those are covered. If there's something left over, well then that's your profit and that's what the entrepreneur gets. But unlike the worker who is guaranteed a wage, there is no guarantee for the entrepreneur that he or she is ever going to make a profit. This is all a huge risk that the entrepreneur takes. Workers don't take a risk. They have a guaranteed paycheck. The risk is the entrepreneur. And that is what we need to celebrate. That risk-taking, the hard work that is required to start a business and to run a business, that's what we should be celebrating, right? We really should rename Labor Day Entrepreneur Day because without the entrepreneur, where is labor? Well, everybody is stuck working for his or herself. And most people don't want to work for themselves. I mean, everybody has the option of being self-employed, but a lot of people don't choose that option. Why? Because they can't make any money working for themselves. The only way they can make money is if they work for somebody else. So let's celebrate the somebody else that made all that possible. So have you ever browsed in incognito mode? It's probably not as incognito as you may think. And why would it be? Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. And Google's made a fortune by tracking your online movements. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit right now against the company in California where it's been accused of secretly collecting user data. And Google's defense, they say incognito doesn't mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as close to invisible online as possible? Well, you do what I do. You use ExpressVPN. One of the key data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But by using ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. So every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN users. That makes it harder for any third party to identify you or harvest your data. And best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. And in fact, I get a bonus when I use my ExpressVPN because living in Puerto Rico means a lot of the content that would normally be available to me if I was browsing from the States is unaccessible. But of course, when I'm using my ExpressVPN, 
those content providers think I'm in the States. And now all of that content that would otherwise be inaccessible to me is now completely accessible thanks to ExpressVPN. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Just visit expressvpn.com slash gold and you'll get three extra months free off your one year subscription. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash gold. Go to expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. You know, much of the Labor Day holiday is really about labor unions, right? Because labor unions really want to take credit for a lot of the gains that workers have been able to make over the decades. Yet these gains are not the result of labor unions. If anything, workers have achieved these gains despite labor unions. They've had to overcome the obstacles created by labor unions. These gains are the result of capitalism. And more specifically, the gains are the result of the entrepreneurs, the business owners that we really should be honoring and celebrating because they've been able to take the risks. They've been able to make the sacrifices that led to an improvement in productivity. See, the real reason that workers are able to be paid more, the reason that wages go up is because worker productivity goes up. But why does worker productivity go up? Now, in some cases, obviously, the worker himself can become more productive as he becomes more experienced and can do the job better. And that's why people who have been in a job longer tend to earn more money than people who are just getting started because you have more skills. You hone your skills, you become quicker, you make fewer mistakes, and therefore you're more productive. And so after many years on the job and really honing and improving your skills, you're able to earn more money. But the other reason and the more important reason that workers earn more money is because their employers provide them with tools and those tools make them more productive. Their labor is more productive when it's combined with a tool, right? Think about somebody who's a construction worker, somebody who's got a shovel to dig with. How much dirt can you move with a shovel? versus one of these huge machines that they use now, which probably does the work maybe of 20 men or 50 men, whatever. But what makes that guy driving an earth-moving machine so much more productive than a guy digging with a shovel is the machine. Well, where did that machine come from? It came from savings. It came from capital investment. Who did that? The employers, right? The entrepreneurs, they're the ones. And the people who invented these machines and these tools, right? The creativity and the ingenuity of the entrepreneur who invented it and then the other entrepreneur, maybe the same entrepreneur, who took the economic risk of building it and seeing how it worked, right? These are the actions. This is the risk-taking that we want to celebrate and honor because that is why labor has been able to enjoy all of these successes over the decades. That's what is responsible for shorter work weeks. It's rising productivity. That's why you have weekends. That's why children are no longer sent off to work by their parents because they don't have to, because the parents are now so much more productive that the children don't have to work. But this is not because of labor unions. It's because of the hard work, the sacrifice, the perseverance, the ingenuity the steadfastness, the dedication 
of the entrepreneur that nobody wants to recognize. I think a perfect example of this is Henry Ford. Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motor Company, in 1913, Henry Ford unveiled the first ever production line, a moving production line where you had individuals who were assigned one task. See, before Henry Ford, you had a group of individuals assigned to building a car. And all the individuals in that group would build the entire car, you know, from the wheels up. The assembly line changed all that. And of course, not just for automobiles, but it was adopted in all sorts of industries as a result of the success of Henry Ford. But with the production line, each person had his or her own task. And you just did the same task over and over and over again. But that resulted in a more efficient production of cars. So by utilizing an assembly line, the people who worked for Ford Motor Company were able to produce a lot more cars per day. And ultimately that led Henry Ford to doubling the pay that his workers earned. They were getting $2.50 a day and Ford doubled that to $5 a day. Now, what made this possible? Why was Ford able to pay his workers $5 a day? Well, it was because of the assembly line. He made his workers a lot more productive and it was that increased productivity that enabled the workers to earn more money. Now, of course, Ford earned a profit as a result of that. And, you know, a lot of people look at profit as it's some kind of dirty word. That's why I said earlier to communists, they elevate labor because they think profit represents exploitation. They think that whatever a entrepreneur earns above what's paid to the workers is exploitation because they're exploiting labor. But the minute Henry Ford came up with a production line, it was that advancement. It was his investment in the tools and his vision of a production line and the risk that he took to develop it. That's what enabled those workers to make more money. But for Ford's production line, they would have been stuck at two and a half dollars an hour. So is it exploitation that Ford should make a profit for being able to double the wages of his workers? Of course not. Now, I know a lot of people look back at this and they think, well, you know, the reason Ford did that, the reason he raised wages is because he wanted his workers to be able to afford to buy his cars. And that's why it's a good idea now for businesses to just raise wages so consumers have more money. That was a bunch of nonsense. Yes, Henry Ford said that. But that's just because he was a good public relations guy. He wanted to say, hey, I'm paying workers more money because I'm a nice guy. I want them to be able to buy my cars, right? That's not why he raised their wages. First of all, that would be ridiculous. I mean, if you're giving your workers more money just so they can turn around and give it back to you to buy your cars, that's like giving away your cars for free. I mean, Ford wasn't making cars to give them away. Ford wants to actually sell cars. So that is nonsense if you actually drill down. But the reason that Ford had to do this was because the free market gave him no choice. See, here's the problem. When Ford unveiled the production line and he had these workers, this is hard work. I mean, this is really monotonous work to just repeat the same task over and over and over again, right? Every day, very boring, very monotonous. People didn't like it. A lot of people were quitting. 
Henry Ford had a huge turnover rate in the first year that he had the production line. In fact, I read that the turnover rate was 370% per year. Now, Ford needed, I think, 13 to 14,000 workers to make these cars, but that meant that he had to hire 52,000 workers a year just to have a workforce of 13 to 14,000 because so many people were quitting. Also, absenteeism was very high. I think it was about 10% of the workforce that just didn't show up any given day. And this was a big deal on a production line because if one person wasn't there to do their job, you know, the whole line would shut down because everybody depended on everybody else. And so what Ford had to do was he had to keep a reserve of workers who didn't even do anything. They were just there just in case the guy that was supposed to show up didn't show up. And so this was also increasing Ford's cost. And because there was such a high turnover rate, they had to constantly retrain people to replace the people who had quit. And so what Ford decided to do was to double the pay so that his workers wouldn't quit. What he decided to do to make sure that workers weren't so bored that they quit to get another job, I'm just going to pay them so much money that they're not going to want to quit because nobody else will be able to afford to pay them $5 a day because they don't have the production line. Ford had made his workers so productive that he could afford to pay them more than anybody else. Remember, these are not highly skilled workers who are on these production lines. They just had to be trained to do this task. And Ford was able to pay them $5 a day and still become one of the richest men in the world in the process by enriching all of his workers. And in fact, I want to put this $5 a day into perspective, just so you really understand how much money this was back in 1914. Because in 1914, the price of gold was $20 an ounce. So if you got paid $5 a day, you got an ounce and a quarter per week of gold. That's what Ford workers were paid. That means over the course of a year, they were paid 65 ounces of gold per year. That was the salary. All right, well, what's 65 ounces of gold per year today? Well, at today's gold price of you know just over $1,800 an ounce, that equates to $120,000 per year. That's how much Ford workers were making in 1914. How much are they making today? Well, look it up online. The average Ford worker today makes about $50,000 a year compared to $120,000 a year when Henry Ford ran the company. And by the way, when Henry Ford ran the company, there was no labor union. Ford was not unionized at that time, and it didn't become unionized until much later in the future. So without labor unions, Ford production workers were making the equivalent of $120,000 a year, yet today, with all the unions representing them, they're only making $50,000 a year. But you also have to remember that in 1914, Ford workers paid no federal income taxes. They also paid no Social Security taxes, no Medicare taxes. There was nothing withheld from their paycheck. So they got that $120,000 a year after tax. So in other words, for a Ford worker to get $120,000 a year after tax, 
after Social Security, after federal income taxes, after state income taxes, I would guess that that worker would have to earn $175,000 today to have the same purchasing power that a Ford worker had in 1914. Now that explains a lot when you think about that, right? You got to earn $175,000 a year to earn what a worker earned in 1914. That explains why women are working. Think about the average guy who works for Ford Motor on a production line. He probably, if he's married, his wife probably has a job. Well, if you took the wife's income and added it to his income, you still wouldn't come close to what the Ford worker used to make on his own back in 1914, even before you factor in that he didn't pay any tax. But then when you factor in the tax, you can see that two people today can't even come close to what one person used to earn all by himself. And again, this is without a minimum wage law or any other government programs meant to help the workers, to help them not be exploited and get better overall pay packages. They were paid a lot more before the government came on the scene to try to help them. But it wasn't just the workers, right, who benefited from the increased productivity that resulted from the production line. Consumers benefited dramatically because the price of cars collapsed. In fact, I don't have the data on the decline in car prices from 1914 when the production line was first introduced to 1920, but I was able to quickly find the reduction in car prices from 1920 to 1929. So in 1920, the average car that Ford produced cost the consumer $940. Now, in today's money, I don't know, maybe that equates to around $85,000, you know, using the gold price as a reference. But they went from $940 in 1920 all the way down to $290 in 1929, which using the same gold reference would equate to about $26,000 per car. But that is a huge decline, a 70% drop in the price of cars during those nine years. That's what, 8% per year, right? The government would say, oh, that's terrible. Look at all that deflation, right? People must have stopped buying cars in the 1920s. Everybody was waiting for a lower price. Of course not. More cars were sold every year. Henry Ford sold a lot more cars when they were $290 a piece than when they were $940 a piece. Why? Because more people can afford to buy a car for $290 than who could afford to buy it for $940. So everybody won. But the reason that everybody won, the reason that workers got higher wages, the reason that consumers got lower prices was Henry Ford. It was his hard work, his ingenuity, his creativity, his perseverance, his risk-taking. That's the reason that everybody benefited. And why did Henry Ford invent the production line? And why did he take the risk to put that invention into place? Was it because he was a really nice guy and just cared about the people and wanted more people to be able to afford cars? No, it's because he wanted to get rich. He wanted to make money. And Henry Ford knew that he could make a lot more money if he sold a lot more cars. And how do you sell more cars? You lower the price. And by lowering the price of cars, he was able to sell a lot more cars because more people could afford to buy the cars at the lower price. And so even though the prices were lower, the volume exploded and he made a lot more money. 
And think about all the other ways that the U.S. economy benefited from Henry Ford's greed, because basically that's what it was. It boils down to the fact that Henry Ford wanted to make more money, and so he came up with the production line. And of course, in the process, he had to pay his workers a much higher salary to work the production line. And then think about all the other manufacturing businesses that incorporated Henry Ford's production line into their own production process. Think about how much more efficient manufacturing became in general. Think about how much lower manufactured goods prices fell because other people incorporated the innovation of Henry Ford. And again, why did Henry Ford do that innovation? Because he's a benefactor of society? No, he did it to make more money for himself. As Adam Smith so eloquently put, He was led by an invisible hand, even though his only goal was to enrich himself in the process, he enriched everybody else. But not only did his customers benefit because now they had cars, whereas before they had nothing, maybe they had a bicycle or maybe they had a horse, but an automobile is a much more efficient form of transportation than a horse. That's why none of us are riding on horseback. We're not riding in horse-drawn carriages. I mean, horses are around, carriages are around. Why don't people buy them? Because cars are a lot more economical. A lot more people can have a car than have a horse. I mean, horses are very expensive to upkeep. Apart from the fact that you got to feed them, you got to have a place to put them, right? And people living in the cities, I mean, where are you going to put your horse? So Americans saved a lot of money no longer having to rely on horseback for transportation. And because Americans saved a lot of money on transportation, they had more money to buy other things, to do other things with. And because Henry Ford shortened the time that it took to get from point A to point B, because if you're getting from A to B on a horse, it's going to take you a lot longer than if you get there in a car. And so that time is lost productivity. Instead of sitting in a horse for all this time, people could actually do things. They can enjoy their lives or they can do more work. So the economy benefited in many, many ways, far beyond the direct benefits of having a cheaper car. And all of those benefits can be credited to Henry Ford. Without the Model T and the production line, none of those other gains would have been possible. And of course, It's not just Henry Ford. There are a lot of other entrepreneurs that contributed to America's success. I'm just singling out one as an example, but that doesn't mean that others are not equally deserving. I mean, he is certainly one of the greatest American entrepreneurs, but there are a lot of other great American entrepreneurs. Many of them are still alive today. It's not just the ones that died, you know, decades ago that have contributed to America's prosperity. There are Americans alive today making contributions. And these Americans would be able to make more contributions if we didn't have all these government roadblocks in their way. And in fact, there'd be even more people contributing. Think about all the people who might be in business today, but for government regulation and taxation. Think about all the businesses that never got started because governments prevented them from being started. Think about all the businesses that failed because they couldn't afford to survive with all the regulations and taxes. So we would have even more entrepreneurs to honor if the government didn't make being an entrepreneur so difficult. It's difficult enough as it is without the government adding to the burden. And you know, people, you know, you're taken for granted, you're a worker, you're celebrating Labor Day, you got the day off. You know who doesn't have the day off? Your boss right? People who own businesses, 
Entrepreneurs, they never get a day off. Sure, the business may be closed for a day, but that doesn't mean they're not working. You know, a lot of people, you show up, you got a nine to five job, you show up at nine o'clock, you do your work, quit in time, five o'clock, you go home, right? But if you run the business, if you own the business, there is no quitting time. You are working almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. People might say, well, Peter, that's, that's impossible, right? You got to sleep, which is true, right? But business owners get a lot less sleep because they have a lot of problems keeping them up at night. And of course, a lot of times when they're sleeping, they're dreaming about their businesses. Their business is all consuming. It becomes a huge part of their existence, of their lives. You have to dedicate so much. You got to put the business first. A lot of times you own a business, you're putting it before your family because your workers are also part of your family. You have a big responsibility when you run a business because you feel personally responsible for the people who work for you, who depend on you, for your customers, right? There's a lot of weight on your shoulders when you are an entrepreneur. And again, that's why we should be celebrating them, honoring them with a holiday instead of vilifying them, which is what we do. And in fact, I think that today it's harder than ever to be an entrepreneur because entrepreneurs today have to put up with much heavier burdens than what Henry Ford had to put up with back in his day because we have all sorts of requirements now that didn't exist back then. All sorts of taxes that need to be paid, record keeping. I mean, the extra work that has been layered on the entrepreneur by the government in modern America means it's much harder for these entrepreneurs to succeed. And the fact that they can succeed, despite everything that the government has done to make that success so much harder to achieve, is all the more reason to celebrate them. I mean, not only do they have to pay much higher taxes today, but they have to collect taxes from everybody else. They're collecting taxes from their employees and paying it. You know, when Henry Ford had to pay $5 a day, he just wrote a check for $5. There was nothing else he had to do. He didn't have to withhold taxes and pay it over to the government or calculate what he owed for unemployment insurance or workman's comp. There, there was no health insurance that employers were now routinely provide. No, you just paid the workers and then the workers got the money and they did what they wanted with it. But today you have to collect taxes from your employees and in fact, a lot of businesses are also helping the government collect taxes from their customers. In fact, a lot of businesses are required now to be unpaid spies for the government, turning in their customers if they suspect their customers may not be paying their taxes. And there's very onerous penalties, civil and criminal, if you fail to do that. Also, employers are like unpaid immigration officers, supposedly turning in their employees who you know aren't legally here. I mean, there's a lot of responsibilities that have been put on the American entrepreneur that shouldn't be there and that weren't there in the past. And think about how easy it is to be sued today as an entrepreneur, right? Employees weren't armed to the teeth like they are today with respect to their ability to sue employers. Employers get sued all the time today for things in the past they never could have been sued for. That's why I've always said that if you are a small businessman, it's like you are in the government crosshairs, right? They are gunning for you. I mean, look at what happened to landlords during COVID, right? Hey, don't pay your rent. You don't have to pay your rent. Who gives a damn about the landlord? Maybe the landlord 
depends on that rental income. Maybe that's their retirement. Oh, no, all we care about is the renter. We don't give a damn about the landlord. Well, that's the same thing as the entrepreneur. The business owner, right, is like the landlord. But we've made it very easy now for workers to sue their employers. Now, it's not a two-way street, right? The employer can't sue the worker. For example, let's say that I am a employer and I happen to be a white guy and I have a black employee and I call him into my office one day and I say, you know, you're doing a great job, but I just got to tell you, I don't like black people. And, you know, I just can't, you know, employ you anymore. I just want to replace you with somebody who's white, right? I mean, obviously I'm going to get sued eight ways from Sunday, right? You can't do that in America. But on the other hand, same situation, but reverse it, right? Let's say a white employee walks into the office of his black employer and he says, hey, you know, it's a really great company and, you know, I got no gripes, but, you know, I just really don't want to work for a black guy. I'm sorry. I I, I just can't do it. I'm going to go find a company that's run by a white guy because, you know, I, I'm really prejudiced. I don't like blacks and, I, you know, I put up with it for a while, but I'm just not going to put up with it anymore. I, I, I quit, right? You can't sue. You can't sue somebody for a racially motivated quit. You can only sue for a racially motivated firing. Why? I mean, it should be a two-way street. I mean, it works with everything. If you're a man and you fire a woman and you say, I just don't want a woman working for me, you're going to get sued. But if you're a man and you quit a job and your boss is a woman, you say, look, I don't like working for a woman. I need to work for a man. And then you quit. Well, that woman can't sue you. You're allowed to quit for any reason that you want. It's your decision. But we've said that, no, 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 employers, they don't have that right anymore. They can't make their own decisions because if you fire somebody for a reason that we say is wrong, well, you're going to get sued. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, Peter, that's because the employer has all this power and the worker doesn't have any power. Well, that's not always the case. I mean, it's the case sometimes, but in a lot of small businesses, sometimes there are workers that have a lot of power right? You're running a small business. You have some key people that you may really depend on. They've been with you for a long time. You've invested a lot of time into training them. They know a lot of things that would be hard for a new employee uh, to learn. They have key relationships with maybe your customers, uh, with your suppliers, and you just really need them. And that's why you pay them a lot because if they quit, you're really in trouble. In fact, sometimes a key employee becomes so integral to the success of a business that the business owner makes that employee a partner in the business. Now, sometimes though, the employee is even more motivated than that. He doesn't want to be a partner in his employer's business. He wants to go out on his own and start his own company. So he quits and he does just that. He's now competing with his former employer. But the reason that he's able to do that is because he's learned on the job. Years and years of working for another entrepreneur enables new entrepreneurs to venture out into the world. The employer shows the employee the ropes. He trains him. He shows him his best stuff. He shows him how it's done. And if you're working for somebody long enough, you pick up the skills that are necessary to run your own company. After all, you've helped somebody else run their company long enough. Now it's time to start running your own. And, you know, this is the way capitalism works. So not only 
are entrepreneurs out there coming up with better ways of doing things, innovating, creating new products, coming up with new services, improving the lives of their customers, and creating employment opportunities for their workers and raising their wages by helping to make those workers more productive. But they're also incubating brand new entrepreneurs. The best way to learn to be an entrepreneur is from another entrepreneur. You can't really learn it in school because it's hard for a teacher to teach something he's never actually done. The best teachers are the people who are out there doing it. Sometimes these very vital employees, they could take advantage of how vital they are and how important they are. Maybe they harass the boss. Maybe they do things that the boss doesn't like that contributes to a hostile environment. Who knows? Maybe there's even some sexual harassment going on. I don't know. But a lot of times the boss has to put up with it because, you know, I, I, I need this guy or I need this gal. And even though, you know, there's certain things I don't like, you know, they're too important to fire, right? And so if in this circumstance, one of these key vital employees is harassing the boss, there's nothing the boss can do about it. Either you fire the worker or you got to suck it up. But if you're an employee, right, no, you have the choice. You can sue now. If your boss is saying things or doing things and in your opinion creates a hostile work environment or if you think some of the things they're saying amount to sexual harassment, you can sue. And in fact, there's an army of lawyers waiting to represent you for free. They will take these cases on contingency and you can sue your boss. And in fact, if your boss loses, not only does he have to pay his own attorney's fees, he's got to pay yours too, which is why so many employers, especially small employers, end up settling what amounts to extortion on frivolous lawsuits. But that's never the case for an employer. There are no lawyers who are going to represent employers suing employees. And to the extent that there actually were any, there's no way they would do it on contingency because they know they're going to lose because all the laws are written to protect the workers. Because again, there's a lot more workers. There's a lot more employees than employers because it's a lot easier to be an employee. Again, all you got to do is show up and do what you're told and you can be an employee. It is far harder to be an employer. That's why there aren't so many of them. And that's why so many people who try to start small businesses fail. And the ones that don't fail, the ones that succeed, the ones that improve everybody's life, the ones that are responsible for higher real wages and lower prices and the improvements and the efficiencies that we all take for granted, these are the real unsung heroes of the American economy. And they are the ones that we should be celebrating on this Labor Day because they labor too. They work harder than anybody and they accomplish more than anybody. And they are far more deserving of a national holiday than the millions of people they employ and who owe them their livelihoods. Oh, 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 oh,